This is a Federal News Network podcast. The National Contract Management Association has a new president-elect. The organization with thousands of federal practitioners and contractors as members has chosen for next year's president, retired Air Force Lieutenant General and former director of the Defense Contract Management Agency, Wendy Masiello, who joins me now. General Masiello, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And you come to this with quite a background. I consider acquisition the beginning of contract management. I guess maybe contract management is something that follows on the completion of an acquisition, but it's really kind of a continuous effort, isn't it? Contracting is from beginning to end. It's when you start strategizing the acquisition and figuring out what you're going to need to put down on paper in the context of the contract, all the way to redistributing property that might have been purchased under that contract once everything is complete. Let's get to the bigger issue of the acquisition and procurement challenges. The Biden administration has some refreshed policies with respect to what they call equity and also climate change as factors in a wide range of acquisitions. What are the challenges there that you see that the professionals in government doing this in the next year or two are going to face? I'm not sure what they might be yet, Tom. I think the thing that's nice in the executive orders is it gives each of the agencies an opportunity to do an assessment of their current policies and processes and procedures to determine where barriers might still exist with regard to equity or climate change mitigation. They're in that process now. As they go through that and come to a better understanding, we'll all better than know what the next steps are and have a better idea on what the impacts might be as we go forward. But it's going to come down to the individual contracting officers at some point to make sure that whatever the agency's posture and policy is, it gets expressed through what those individuals do day to day, doesn't it? Absolutely. So understanding what the risks are, pushing the new guidance policies and procedures out, making sure that they are very clear in the processes constructing contracting tools to get there, making sure the advertisements are clear and creating acquisition strategies that support those or all be part of pushing that out in a consistent manner. And in doing so, is it possible to glean from industry some of the practices it has in its own acquisition and purchasing and procurement that could be adopted to government? Maybe some of that work is already done. You're absolutely right. As I watch, particularly in the public industry, those that are under the SEC guidance are moving very rapidly in the context of equity and climate change under the context of ESG standards. And they're getting help with the SEC task force that's just put in place to enforce climate and ESG issues. So it's been fascinating to watch how rapidly the companies who are public companies are responding to the demands for equity and climate change mitigation. And in your old stomping ground, the Defense Department, it's a big issue because, if nothing else, the effects of climate change or the purported effects certainly have impact on defense facilities physically. Absolutely. So it's the facilities that they're constructing, and you look at Tyndall and their attempt to create a smart city, essentially, down there in Tyndall in the wake of the hurricane. So I do see that there are opportunities that the Defense Department is looking to take advantage of the issues important in climate change and figuring out ways to build that into their constructs. So there are little models that are going to be out there that others can take advantage of. 
And I was glancing through the agenda for the NCMA upcoming World Congress, which is really a great event. I've been to it a few times. And the supply chain issues in cybersecurity specifically seem to be one of the animating factors in the agenda. And so what do you think are the chief challenges in contract management, especially as they affect supply chain security? There's the CMMC program, but quite a few other initiatives going on in that whole area. You're right, Tom. CMMC is still a big issue, primarily for the small contractors. The small businesses are really struggling with what does it mean? No one argues that cybersecurity concerns are not an issue. We see that as a byproduct of just even the recent Colonial Pipeline initiative. So everybody understands that it's important, but there's cost and there are rapidly evolving issues and changes to what those attacks look like. And it is a constant issue. It's so constantly evolving that the small businesses in particular are really struggling with how to protect their systems, how to buy their products. And of course, many of the contractors are still dealing with the whole concept of what appear to be competing issues in DOD acquisition that include competition. You still need to do competition, but a push towards commercialization and using innovative contractors and the non-traditional contractors who don't operate in the same types of cyber concern issues that many of the defense contractors have figured out how to embrace. And then there's the other transaction authority, authority, the OTA, which is really a growing area for DOD and several other agencies, an old tool recently polished and sharpened. And I wonder if that's going to be drawing congressional scrutiny at some point when they see the types of things DOD might be buying with OTA. Well, I think you're right. I think that OTAs, when you take it off of the mainstream tools and processes, there's less visibility into what OTAs are offering. I'm not saying it's a good tool. I'm not saying it's the right thing at the right time. But when you do take it off of a traditional data collection point, when you do take it off of the traditional transparency and move it into an OTA construct, it changes what you know about what's being done. So proceed with caution, in other words. Exactly. All right. We're speaking with retired Air Force Lieutenant General Wendy Massiello, president-elect of the National Contract Management Association. And switching gears for a moment, just by coincidence, this week a report came out from the National Academy of Sciences empowering the defense acquisition workforce to improve mission outcomes using data science. You were co-chair of the committee that created that report. Tell us what's in there. It's an assessment of what industry and academia are doing in the context of data, application of data, managing data, and upskilling their workforces to understand and appreciate it, and what can be gleaned from those experiences in those areas to be applicable for the defense acquisition workforce. You will find in our report a very similar statement to one that just came out in Deputy Secretary of Defense Hicks document about creating data advantage, that data is a strategic asset. And it's how do we harness our workforce and prepare our workforce to embrace data in a way that they never anticipated. Yeah, give us an example of how that might work, because that's, I mean, in some sense, they've always used pricing history and vendor performance history. Some of that is hard data. Some of that is assessment but what are the new types of data that are available that are coming into this whole field? I think that 
Tom, if you just look at the whole concept of digital acquisition, and the Air Force in particular has been very active about talking about digital acquisition as well as in the Space Force. It can begin with something as simple as an electronic design, and by doing an electronic design of an aircraft, building and testing that in in electronic tools to understanding what the components are to build and operate that particular weapon system, and then building it and assembling it without doing any kind of handwork. It's amazing what can come out of that. If you can design an aircraft electronically and build it, you have everything from day one what the components of that particular aircraft are. So when you change or modify or add anything to the aircraft over the lifetime, you already know what the baseline is, and it actually even helps you better sustain it over time when parts become obsolete. It's a huge vision for a long-term approach to how we can change what we do. So it's not just looking at cost data from a historical perspective, but design, modification, integration, and being able to test it all in a digital realm that we've never, ever anticipated and is now just beginning to become available. It sounds like maybe statistical analysis could come into a lot of types of procurement decisions, almost the way it has come into the world of sports. Absolutely, without a doubt. And it's how do we prepare a workforce? How do we give them the tools to do that? What does it take to move us in that direction? The talent that our current universities are kicking out as data scientists, it's remarkable. The tools that accelerate our ability to understand data, to visualize data, are so remarkable that I remember that I studied bar charts and pie charts as a way to visualize data. And now we have multidimensional ways of visualizing data to make sense out of it. Data is important, but the tools that extract the information you need to make decisions are what make the data important for us today. And I guess for the workforce itself, then, knowing the questions you need to ask that could be informed by data, and then you can use the data in some intelligent way other than being overwhelmed by it. Exactly. And it's also even knowing what data you have available It's an appreciation that when you do and manage data, the importance of getting it right because it feeds decisions down the process. It's how do I look at the data? How do I interpret it? How do I trust the data? How do I know the data I've collected is sound, that it's consistently understood? It's a huge life cycle of understanding, and the report talks about data life cycles. It talks about the types and skills that the acquisition workforce will look at and take advantage of in order to learn how to use data and extract the information for decision-making to inform their decisions over time. And there is a position in the world called the Contracting Officer's Representative, the COR. Can you envision perhaps a code, a Contracting Officer's Data Executive or something coming next? Well, you know, I think that under the context of the CDOs that are being established across the Department of Defense, the chief data officers, they'll set standards for data. Contracting professionals actually use analysts and have for a long time. This is so much bigger than just the data on dollars, the data on historical contracts, the data on the people and the companies who have done business for us. This is rethinking entirely 
the output of our acquisition system and informing things much more rapidly in a different way. But you're absolutely right. I think what it means is we're going to actually build teams and much like a good, strong, powerful acquisition team that's innovative and thoughtful, it's a multifunctional team that brings different skill sets to the table. And that is exactly how the data analyst and the data ecosystem operates. There are data engineers, there are analysts, there are curators of data, there are data scientists that bring different perspectives to how to look at data, how to manage data, and a key component of that are the people who understand the work that's being done. For example, the contracting officers who bring a huge understanding of what might be called the domain expertise. So that domain expert, whether it's a contracting person, whether it's a project manager, whether it's a design engineer, are all part of this data ecosystem that will help us make better decisions at the speed of relevance in a way we never, never thought we'd be able to do. Sounds like an exciting time to be in the contracting and acquisition and contract management field. I think it is if you have time to think about it. And I always worry about our workforce because, as you know, we have a whole continuum of talent and expertise and experience. And we also struggle with time. So I'm super excited about what the opportunity does because I think if we can better use data to inform our decisions and learn how to capture it and translate it into information, we can move faster. That allows us to move at that speed of relevance. But it is a big elephant and we have a very large defense acquisition community. And to get everybody prepared is an enormous task. So it'll be incumbent upon DOD to really target that initiative and apply those talents early and best where you can and where it's going to make the biggest bang for the buck over time. But I am super excited about what it can mean for defense acquisition and our warfighters and getting good products to the warfighters faster and helping our acquisition workforce find ways to do that through data. Retired Air Force Lieutenant General Wendy Massiello is president-elect of the National Contract Management Association. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview together with a link to that latest acquisition workforce report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? 
You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy, and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop 
And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. 
And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is sponsored in part by U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card. You're the boss of your own life, but are you the boss of your own finances? Here at the Jordan Harbinger Show, we don't shy away from real-life conversations. And, of course, one of the most taboo topics is always finances. U.S. Bank offers a wide range of credit cards for a wide variety of financial needs, and one of its most useful cards is the U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card. With a low introductory APR for 20 billing cycles, this card is a tool for getting ahead. The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card is a savvy financial tool for large purchases, unexpected expenses, and balance transfers. And with the ability to customize your payment date, this card gives you control over your financial future. Apply now at usbank.com platinum. With the U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card, have peace of mind for all your financial needs. To see if you qualify, visit usbank.com slash platinum. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. Hi, I'm here on USPTO. It's almost the end of the year, and if you don't put me on a timesheet, I will be gone forever. Use me or lose me. Let's get away. It's getaway time. Get our best deals of the season on a new Hyundai. It's your journey. Own every mile at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now, get 0% APR for up to 36 months, plus zero payments for 90 days on select Hyundai vehicles. Hurry to your local Hyundai dealer today. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offer ends 1323. Call 1-562-314-4603 for complete offer details. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever, so you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts.